interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to Interrupted, the podcast of the West Star Institute, which is dedicated to advancing scholarship on the history and evolution of Christianity while exploring issues that matter to society and culture. Interrupting, enriching, and disturbing conventional religious discourse in the public square. Interrupted brings the expertise of West Star scholars, guests, and practitioners to bear on important issues in the world today. Hi, I'm Jordan Miller, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Interrupted. This episode you're about to hear is part of our roundtable series, where we gather a group of Westar scholars and practitioners to discuss a timely topic. This time around, that topic is Christianity Interrupted. A lot of the conversation you're about to hear responds to the recent book published by the Christianity Seminar called After Jesus Before Christianity, a historical exploration of the first two centuries of Jesus movements. It's available from HarperCollins, and it is definitely worth checking out if you haven't had a chance to look at it yet. The collection of people you're about to hear from are gathered from across Westar's seminars and groups, including the Christianity Seminar, which published the book, the God Seminar, the newly formed Christ Seminar, and the Praxis Forum. Uh, if you want to know more about any of those groups, you should check out westarinstitute.org. Unlike a traditional academic panel, these conversations include more panelists than you might expect who deliver short thesis-like statements uh, rather than longer essay-type talks. So with these opening statements, you'll hear from Julia Kahn, Ellie Elliott, Matthew Arthur, Anna Mercedes, Hal Tausig, who's one of After Jesus Before Christianity's editors, incidentally, and Celine Lilly. After those opening statements, the folks in the group will ask each other some questions and have a roundtable discussion. This event was recorded live on March 3rd, 2022, and was the final interrupted roundtable organized by the Westar Think Tank. These roundtables are going to continue in the future, but they're going to be organized directly by this podcast. All right, here it is, Christianity Interrupted. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on um, today's meeting, our final interrupted session under the auspices of the think tank. I uh, just wanted to thank my um, co-think tank analysts, Julia Kahn and Ellie Elliott, who are here on the call with us as well. Um, we are pleased to have been able to do a series of these events for you all uh, and glad that we are able to uh, kind of put a nice little cap on things tonight. As I mentioned, my name is Jordan Miller. I am a member of the God Seminar, uh, but I am also the co-producer and co-host with Matthew Baker of the Westar Interrupted podcast. Uh, I am going to hand things off first to Julia, if you'd give your opening statement, please. Thanks, Jordan. Good evening. I am Julia Kahn. I serve at Westar as an analyst for the Think Tank. I'm also a member of the Praxis Forum and serve as a pastor of United Church of Christ Congregation in Western Massachusetts. I'm going to start this evening from the notion that the earliest Jesus communities were diverse. 
current scholarship, not the least of which is contained in the new West Star Scholar book, After Jesus, Before Christianity, supports the various ways early communities differed based on geography, as well as who evangelized to and the social context of a particular community. We also know that Christianity today is diverse. There are evangelicals and mainliners. There are socially conservative mainliners and socially progressive evangelicals and vice versa. There are groups seen by more Orthodox Christians to be Christian adjacent communities, such as Mormons. There is also historical diversity with the delineation between Eastern Orthodox, Catholic and Protestant. Things get wonky when our shared social understanding of Christianity ignores this diversity. We ignore it in our origin stories and we ignore it often in our modern experiences. Our brains can hold the notion that there are differences. Yet we give in to the social dialogue that Christianity is Christianity is Christianity as if they are not real and profound differences. Such thinking is the mode of empire. It is the kind of thinking Constantine would want. It is the kind of stance institutional churches and ed educational institutions prefer. It is safe. It provides a means of social control. Yet what we learn from the Jesus story is that Jesus came to point the way out for the trapped and the maligned. Jesus's life and ministry served as a beacon towards the experience of freedom when lived reality was far from it. Today, I see the greatest gift a re-examination of Christian origins can give us is to ground us in the reality that to be a Christian simply means to follow Jesus. It is not about which church or denomination you belong to. It's not about what your political beliefs are. Being a follower of Jesus is so much more important. In fact, our world would be better off if more closeted Jesus followers would come out. If you spend your time thinking about Jesus and his historical context, if it means a lot to you that the truth of how the Jesus people became Christian gets out, or if you spend most of your time dissecting Christian theology, you might very well be a seeker of Jesus. Plurality in the earliest Jesus communities should sustain us today. Plurality and what it means to follow Jesus can be our strength. I'm left wondering this evening what the world would look like if people enamored with the Jesus story and challenged by the notion of Christianity gave themselves permission to denounce the modern church while remaining with the way of Jesus. Just as Buddha did not come to found Buddhism, Jesus did not come to create Christianity. Jesus's ministry was one of denouncing the failures of his current religious political structures. A modern day Christian should be empowered to do the same. The church and Christianity in all of its forms is not one in the same with following Jesus. Thank you. So my name is Ellie Elliott and I'm an analyst and the coordinator of the Think Tank and coordinator of the Bible Search and Rescue website set to launch in April. I've been a West Star scholar since the 1990s and part of the various iterations of the seminars on Christian origins. And I live on the territory of the Apsalika, Cheyenne and Ochetishakoan nations in Red Lodge, Montana. Let me offer you one of two three, three minute or more presentations. The other one addresses the need, the need to interrupt Christianity as an imperial reality. 
inextricably linked with the European colonial invasion of most of the rest of the world. Instead, I'll start with an oversimplification of a key debate in modernist biblical scholarship at the turn of the last century, a debate that poses contrasting metaphors for Christian origins. Adolf von Harnack was a German Lutheran church historian, a historical critical biblical scholar and an advocate of the social gospel. At the turn of the last century, he gave a series of lectures on the essence of Christianity. The metaphor he mentions there is the kernel and the husk, one we can simply simplistically identify with the Reformation project of rediscovering the original kernel meaning of the Gospels after removing the Roman Catholic husk to supposedly regrow the true faith. He describes the kernel of Christianity as the message of Jesus and centers on the individual. For example, the kingdom of God that enters into the individual soul and establishes, quote, the rule of holy God in the hearts of individuals, end quote. The metaphor from Harnack then is the kernel of the pure message about something that happens in the individual. Alfred Loisy responded to Harnack in a book titled in English, The Gospel and the Church. Loisy was a French Roman Catholic priest, a historical critical biblical scholar and a founder of the study of history of religions. He was eventually excommunicated for this work. Yet his book in response to Harnack defends Roman Catholic tradition. Loisy saw and appreciated the whole of a continuously developing tradition as Christianity, using the metaphor of a tree still living and growing as the whole of the Christian tradition and church, viewing the kingdom of God as collective society, not individualist. You may have heard an oft-repeated quotation from him, Jesus foretold the kingdom and it was the church that came. Read with Harnack's view, that's a problem. And the, the search is for the kernel of the kingdom within the husk of the church. Loisy reads it as a fact that the tree of Christianity has grown and lives as the church. Loisy chides Harnack for ending up dissecting a dead kernel instead of seeing the living tree overdrawn. Given a choice between these two perspectives as the only ones, I choose Loisy. These are not the only choices of metaphor though. So here's a discussion question, especially for our continuing discussions of after Jesus before Christianity. Let me first emphasize, however, that it is important that we move beyond Harnack's metaphor for the Protestant modernist project attempting to find the kernel and substituting the Roman empire for the corrupted Catholic husk, as if Christianity in its origins is somehow not really imperial. I have more to say about that, obviously. But what, metaf what metaphors, however, are we assuming as we look at origins? Are we looking for many kinds of seeds growing into different plants in all kinds of different environments? Or what's another metaphor? This could be a fun brainstorming conversation that we could keep having. 
Thank you. So I'm Matthew Arthur. I'm a PhD student at Simon Fraser University here in Vancouver, Canada, on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam people. I'm editor-in-chief of Capacious, Journal for Emerging Affect Inquiry, and alongside Petra Carlson and co-chair of phase two of the seminar on God and the Human Future. And so for this short starting provocation, I want to link the question of what is at stake in the founding story or stories of Christianity to a founding question of eco-theology, paraphrased from Lynn White. How do creation stories condition or sometimes impossibilize our sense of responsibility to and care for the human and non-human others around us? Linking these two questions gestures at the performative power of stories, how stories harness our attention, throw us into action or impasse, how they shape our desires and moods or hone our senses in ways that materially reconfigure the world. It gestures at how histories are remembered. Joining these questions also foregrounds the practical divide between fact and fiction that so often plagues conversations between biblical scholarship and theology. Technologies of evidence, like archaeological techniques or citational formats and habits, are also at stake. Here's a quick example. For decades, Indigenous people in Canada have had community memory of their children and relatives being raped and killed at the hands of church-run residential schools. But only now that ground-penetrating radar has imaged the thousands of children's bodies has this become a matter of national interest. Ground-penetrating radar is a technology that is used in large-scale resource extraction projects and in biblical archaeology. So another set of questions unfurls. Which stories should be told? Who brokers the terms of fact and fiction? What politics of citation are involved? Meaning who is called upon to speak and on behalf of whom? Caribbean Canadian poet Dion Brand writes, too much has been made of origins. This is not to say that they are not nurturing, but they are essentially coercive or indifferent, end quote. Sarah Ahmed demonstrates how stories can be tools of violent and exclusionary nationalisms. On the other hand, Cherokee scholar Daniel Heath Justice reminds us that stories are also the bedrock of Indigenous nationhood as a, quote, tribal web of kinship rights and responsibilities that link the people, the land, and the cosmos together in an ongoing and dynamic system of mutually affecting relationships. In closing, I'd like to review a few propositions the God Seminar has voted in favor of. And this is just a few of many, but first that, quote, Indigenous wisdom proceeds and has the potential to preempt and devolve our categories, end quote. Second, that, quote, just as conversations about early Christianity cannot be separated from the role of the Roman Empire, contemporary conversations about God or gods cannot be separated from coloniality, end quote. I agree. Stories about diverse and syncretic, syncretic Christian origins can help us to interrupt toxic contemporary forms of Christian life and practice. How might these stories build bridges with other more recent and ongoing subjects of empire and colonization? Thanks. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you tonight. My name is Anna Mercedes. And I'm joining you from the traditional homeland of the Anishinaabe and Dakota people. 
uh, also called Central Minnesota in the United States. And I'm a professor of theology here at the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University, and also an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Uh, I'm responding to this question in the opening prompt, what does the phrase Christianity interrupted mean to you? And I come to that question as someone who works in contemporary systematic theology. As such, I'm a member of the New Christ Seminar, a seminar that's just beginning its uh, opening stages of work. And I'm very excited to be part of Westar in that way. So my interest is what about contemporary Christianity needs interrupting? And in answering that with reference to Christian origins, as we were prompted to do tonight, the part of Christian origins that most drives me is the way in which we see communities in resistance to empire in early Christianity. And this was one of the central principles that was lifted out in After Jesus Before Christianity as one of the key findings that the authors there lift out for us, that these early Christian communities were um, anti-imperial and in various in various ways positioning themselves against empire. So that piece of Christian origins really drives me in um, answering this question, what about contemporary Christianity needs interrupting? And as is in great resonance with what Julia and Ellie and Matthew have already said, when I ask that question of contemporary Christianity, what I come to is what needs interrupting, it's imperial tendencies. And I feel that that resonates with every single colleague that has spoken so far. So we're clearly setting up a rich conversation here. Um, when I think about contemporary Christianity's position in terms of empire, I think, of course, of that way of empire of taking over, taking over land and taking over um, worldview. But I also, in my own work, am very interested in the way it takes over our bodies and, in fact, reshapes our embodiment. So I look to the ways we see traces of Christian imperialism shaping what we think to be ourselves and our bodies in the late modern West. And I feel that this shapes our categories in a way that Matthew just was alluding to. It also shapes our categories for our very selves. Um, and my key driving interests there are these three categories for the self that I see so operative in the late modern West, and those are our bodies as raced, our bodies as gendered, and our bodies as sexually oriented. So these categories of race and gender and sexuality are ones that I find crucial to look at when we're looking at the imperial tendencies of Christianity ongoing today, because they're not simply categories, race, gender, sexuality, that contemporary Christians might responsibly respond to, they're categories that Christian imperialism gave us. That is, I would argue that race, sexual orientation, and gender as we know it in the modern West are Christian imperial products. So to interrupt Christianity today means to interrupt not only the oppressions related to race, gender, and sexual orientation, but to interrupt those very categories as operative notions of the human. I'm really glad to be part of this conversation tonight. Thank you.
Hal Tausig, poetic theologian and writer, somewhat retiring, current West Star role, primary presenter for After Jesus Before Christianity, member of board of directors, member of phase two Christianity seminar steering committee. My single idea, the ways past and present communities interrupt and elaborate present day Christianities is the primary agency of integrity relative to all existing Christianities. That is, active communitarian dimensions make for genuineness in all realities. And so this applies to present day Christianities also. Functioning living community in its practices, collective thinking and affect provide the effective interruption and effective elaboration in general on its societal level, as much as on its tribal level. As such, living community is more trustable than the following other dynamics of, of Christianities. Community is more trustable than Christian origins. Community has more integrity than scholarship. Community has more responsibility than individual ethics, ritual, doctrine, and creed. Community has more integrity than Christianity itself overall. I do not mean to dismiss all these other dimensions of Christianities, but I do mean to propose community as the primary bringer of integrity, affect, morality, and thought. In terms of our current conversations about after Jesus, before Christianity, the ways the first 200 years of communities of so-called Jesus groups is giving substantial interruption and elaboration to many kinds of Christianities. But the ways that the communities of the first two centuries cannot match the interruption and elaboration in Christianities in our time, mainly because the first two centuries of Jesus peoples is no longer as directly alive as Christian, in quotes, communities in our time. Hence, this is where what needs to be done now, as you ask for something for us to propose to be done, develop and elaborate community in the current era. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, first, I just want to thank um, everyone for being here and the panelists for such provocative um, presentations so far. Uh, my name is Celine Lilly, and uh, I live on the traditional territories of the Arapaho U and Cheyenne peoples um, in what is called Longmont, Colorado. I am um, an adjunct professor of religious studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, as well as the, the, uh, the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. And here at Westar, I'm a member of the Christianity Seminar Phase Two and uh, the Dean of the newly established Westar Academy. Um, so the questions that we were given to frame tonight's roundtable were very provocative ones. And as a historian of early Christianity, they prompted two initial thoughts for me. 
The first is the way in which the creation and interpretation of origin stories is rarely about the past, but almost always a way to naturalize or justify actions, systems, customs, etc. in the present. Put another way, um, by placing our goals and values for the contemporary world in the stories of our origins, we are able to find justifications to undergird our actions and outlooks in our own times. The second, um, which is intimately related to the first, is the constant reminder that I give myself that historical work or reconstruction is always partial, provisional and perspectival. We can never fully know what happened in the past and the questions we ask about the past are always formed by our own ethics, ideologies and investments. And all of this affects what we notice and emphasize and pay attention to. One of the things that kind of in my own contemplation uh, of the prompts that I thought about um, were the controversies over the New York Times 1619 project. And it provided, it, it prompted these questions about, so what difference does it make when we talk about US origins and emphasize the slave trade, the contributions of African-Americans, the colonization of the Americas and the genocide of the indigenous peoples here? What difference does it make when we understand that much of the justification for these actions and the ways in which they continue to shape the status quo are predicated on certain histories, interpretations, and the origin narratives of Christianity? Given this and so much, um, so much more, um, there's a lot at stake in the way we represent the origins of Christianity especially when we consider that the ways in which origins are framed affect contemporary practice. Indeed, communities often justify their practices based on those they claim that are present at the beginning of Christianity. What difference does it make if we have a Jesus movement that is diverse in terms of gender, ethnicity, and social status? What difference does it make if we have an early church leadership that reflects this diversity? What difference does it make if the early church is not only diverse in terms of constituency, but in terms of theology and practice? What difference does it make if we clearly situate the early community in its Roman imperial context? What difference does it make if we notice some of the ways in which early communities, some of the early communities are creative, what we might call egalitarian and exploratory, while others are more circumscribed and stratified in terms of social position? And how might we use these insights in ways that interrupt the polarization and politics so prevalent in our contemporary world? to build bridges rather than new walls. Thanks everybody.
I really loved listening to each of the panelists and getting to know you in this way. Um, my first question I want to send back to Hal because I was really drawn into this idea of community formation and particularly in looking at um, after Jesus, before Christianity, I was um, captivated by the finding there and the emphasis there about chosen kin or chosen family. And I may be getting the language of the book a little bit wrong in the way I'm saying this, but among the key principles, this idea that the early Christian communities seem to be remaking a sense of family or community. This got my attention as somebody who um, does contemporary theology um, within feminist and queer theory, uh, because the idea of chosen family has been really important um, within LGBTQ activism, where a sense of chosen family is sometimes um, the best and strongest family that communities build. Um, and the uh, queer family is often chosen family. So this got my attention when looking at After Jesus Before Christianity. And I was just wondering how if you would tell us more about that aspect of the um, the work in from After Jesus Before Christianity of community formation as perhaps new family. Um, so it's just a query about the work of that book and then about your contribution tonight. Thanks. Yeah, uh, first thing I think I want to say is that it's important to notice that the work of the seminar um, turned out to be primarily trying to th see the larger work of, of the academy at large uh, over the last 40 years. Uh, so it's not that we invented this um, at all, but we found ourselves stunningly um, engaged in, in how, um, how one can think about that in terms of the first two centuries. Uh, and, and there we had two lenses primarily. One, um, uh, family settings and, and designs um, in the first two centuries of the Mediterranean, and secondly, uh, gender bending. Uh, so, so first of all, we saw ourselves looking intensely at the um, broken communities of the, of the imperial um, time there, uh, that, the, that what was happening, it seemed to us in so many ways, was that um, people were being destroyed, hurt, or lost uh, from families, partly because the imperial design um, was was in the in the image of the em emperor himself, who claimed to be Big Daddy, um, and 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 all of that. Um, was a design that was being enacted throughout uh, all of the other conquered peoples. Uh, so there, what we proposed was that um, basically people were being driven away from uh, belonging to one another um, in all kinds of family uh, situations. So um, a particular society could would would find itself um, uh, targeted by Rome as 
um, not, not being allowed to have certain kinds of com communal and, and particularly family um, designs because it was in some ways not Roman. Uh, so, so secondly, that because of um, the intensity of enslavement in that era as well, families were also, for better or for worse of what they were, um, less yet. And so uh, just basically broken bodies and broken uh, dimensions of reality for them. And so especially women and young people um, um, were, were facing from the inside of what they were living, they were, were being targeted by the, um, the violence of the family it's, it's themselves. And, and so there too, especially thinking of, of um, the daughters and sons whose arrangement dimensions of the family itself were going screwy on, on them because um, the, the elders had and the, and the and the fathers and mothers of the elders were allowing um, or promoting a kind of violence within the, their own members. Uh, so we have one of the main um, thing, the two people that we found ourselves looking at very particularly was Thecla and Paul. Um, both because they were um, um, challenging straight up families. And, and they, they um, clearly both take it on straightforwardly, uh, mainly in saying no to marriage. Um, not just the um, other kinds of violences within family, but the way marriage itself had a uh, an inherent violence. Um, so both in both these mythical and perhaps um, uh, historical characters, you you had people saying you you have to watch out for the way that marriage and family um, hurt one another. Um, and both of these characters, it's stunning how no one really understood how much um, that um, both New Testament and larger emerging dimension of Christianity had, had the people within the systems doing violence to one another. Uh, and, and what we proposed was essentially Thecla's proposal on a big broad, and that is, hey, let's make different families. Uh, and, and, and that that historical dimension that perhaps even began in the first century, um, but certainly in the 18th and 19th centuries in uh, Syria, for instance, that is still very clear. Um, that new kinds of families um, are, are growing over against European industrialism. Uh, and it's, it, and there, it's all done in the name of Thecla. Uh, 
So that's part of the ways. I, I, I'll, I'll stop because we got more things to think about, but I would wanna say that, that, so gender bending alongside of the intentional dimensions of what um, the, these first two centuries are doing in terms of uh, studied families um, would be the next place to go. Yeah, this is a question, I think, for uh, you, Matthew, and uh, Jordan for the God Seminar. You've, uh, Matthew, you mentioned the, the two propositions um, about, and especially about it, indigenous wisdom. I don't have it all written down here, but indigenous wisdom as grounding the categories. How do you think that would, bringing that question to the question of the origins of Christianity, um, how would how would it look different? And I guess also combining it with some of the things Hal was saying about community formations as being interruptive, um, just what what difference would it make? And is, is it different metaphors? And and what just any thoughts on that? If not, just go ahead and talk. <laughs> like you anticipated what I was already itching to say. <laughs> oh. I should admit that that voting proposition was in reference to the ways in which ancient and indigenous knowledges can unsettle our post-theistic categories. And so there was a previous a vote prior that was about um, post-theism and then a vote after the fact about the seminar's work not being to salvage God from its religious um, sort of religiously violent inflections. So there's a bit more of a context. I, I rudely paraphrased it for my own um, <laughs> purposes. But I was thinking about what Hal said about community as the place where we forge forms of responsibility and accountability, effective places where bodies and um, our bodies are moved and activated, or where we feel and we have passionate buy-in or, or revulsion for concepts and situations that come to us, also a place where kinships are forged. And then I was also thinking about in the, you know, in the book, this idea that the early Jesus groups did most of their knowledge transmission, most of their teaching through aphorisms and sayings and short stories. And so I have a, and I'll bounce this back to the whole group of panelists, I have a sort of methods question, or really it's about the mechanics of uptake. So we have this good story about Christian origins, but you can't just throw that against a wall over and over and hope that someone who's not open to it is going to absorb that. So how do we start to recodify this or repackage it in such a way that it becomes, and it's not about a politics of palatability, but how do we get these things in front of people so that those core organizing stories that shape people's worlds can change? And that's where I think we can learn a lot from indigenous storytelling practices as the site of indigenous governance, as the site of indigenous diplomacies with other than human beings, plants, animals, waters, and lands. Right, and I do think that this is very much the urgent task of theology in this time. I think of what my late mentor Sally McFagg always said, which is you can't just pull the carpet out from under their feet. You have to give them a good story in return. If you're gonna take away one story, you have to give them another good story. And so beyond that, and I do think that the, this new story of Christian origins is important and good, but there's still the question of uptake, right? And so what genres, what modes, what, what modalities might 
might start to shape the way in which these stories can come in front of people, right? I think of even through genre, like in some ways you think about the virgin birth and ascension and all of these sort of like core moments in the like standard Christian story. And they're like a science fiction in a way. So what can a genre like science or speculative fiction afford us? I think of the writings of like Octavia Butler and the ways in which they, they have really stirred up people's bodies and minds. So what sort of genre play or things like that might afford us ways to get these stories in front of people. I just want to add um, to all of that, uh, Matthew, um, the ways that um, organizing communities kind of generate their own mythology. I, I think community work itself generates uh, stories in a way. It's not always just give the community a new story. It's also how does the community itself generate its own story? Um, yeah, so many good things to talk about. I would just want to uh, say one or two questions for us around the conversation and the, the vocabulary of Christian origins. Um, to my um, taking of, of what happened in um, after Jesus, before Christianity, um, we took some very strong steps away from what Christian origins had done, especially we at the uh, West Star Institute in, in the Jesus Seminar, which focused so intensely on a very small kind of, of, um, of Christian origins. And there were so many mistakes that we did in that process. And I was um, a founding member of that. So I'm, I'm a part of the problem in, in, in this regard. But I, I, want, I want to just ask us, what, what, what can be differences between writing history um, uh, uh, as we did in, in this latest book and pushing so hard the the possibility that Christian origins still may have a, a future. For me, um, one one of the main things that happened in this latest book was not only that we had so much um, so many people contributing, but one of the main things that happened is that we um, basically began to welcome a kind of communitarianness about it. And, and I'm not needing some very, very plain Christian origin-ness about it, neither Christian nor original at all. In other words, what we were pushing most was something secondary, all kinds of really interesting second, third, and fourth generations of different things. So just as we work on these other things, I would love anybody to say yes, no, or maybe to Christian origins in general. Yeah, one of the things that this discussion is just prompting for me, and um, you know, this is definitely based on insights uh, from uh, both Karen King and, uh, and my work with Hal, but really thinking about, you know, what, what difference does it make when we look at um, 
these ancient stories instead of being prescriptive as actually being creative and looking at this multiplicity as part of the ways in which um, in which these early communities take this thread of the Jesus story and really um, are not shy at all about retelling it, recreating it, doing something new with it. And I think one of the things that I found very interesting in just my own work with um, particularly um, Christian communities is that there's this fear of there's this fear of kind of taking creative license around these biblical stories because they're authoritative. And one of the questions that I still ask is, you know, what difference does it make when we take some of these other stories like Thecla, like the Gospel of Mary, and present those first because they're not considered quote unquote authoritative and they allow this room for play. And so one of the questions that I ask on a regular basis is what type of atmosphere needs to be created to help this kind of play and confidence in confidence in play evolve so that there might be um, something else that's possible in, um, in deploying these stories in a different way or even just recreating them from the ground up. Yeah, I'm just responding to you, Celine. I was just thinking that uh, we should ask Julia and Anna both, and I see Anna has a question, so, or a comment, um, kind of about Matthew's question of if we're, if we're looking at after Jesus before Christianity as a story in, in a kind of traditional almost, I mean, if, if we thought of it in um, the role that indigenous stories of creation take, um, what how would that work in the communities you're working with? And kind of the notion of how does it develop the following of Jesus and some of the issues, the, the interruptions you're recommending, Anna, I'm just um, throwing it out there, but maybe you have something better to say. I'm not sure that it's better, Ellie, but it, it is the thread that I had going in my mind. So I'm gonna follow it first and then pass to Julia because I want Julia to have a turn here I've already had one. Um, so I'll just be brief. <clears throat> when Matthew brought up Octavia Butler and then Hal asked the question about origins and then Celine said the word creative, those three things came together all at once for me because one of the things that inspires me about um, Octavia Butler's science fiction um, is this sort of vast community potential to be creative and to um, launch new worlds and new ways of surviving. And um, if I think of Christian origins, if I'm if I'm trying to take up Hal's, Hal's question, um, yes, no, maybe. If I think of Christian origins as creative, not only in their original forms, whatever those were, but as creative, active agents now, I can think about Christian origins as ancestors to invoke, as ancestors to invite into our um, incarnations of Christ now. I can ask those ancestors to um, be living parts of the story and community we become now. And so it, as, as ancestor, as living ancestor, as creative living ancestor, um, almost in the mode of um, Black speculative science fiction, 
I'm very excited about that kind of Christian origin. <laughs> okay, I'm passing to Julia. Thanks, Anna. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about when I, the first thing that came to my mind when we were talking about how do we create something living and new stories, part of me was like, how is it not already living? To me, uh, having an engaged Christianity is a living thing. The scriptures are living. And uh, I think one of the ways that we see that is in preaching. Uh, I think I go there first because I'm a pastor and, that, and it's because the work that I do, that's where I find my creativity and where I find this connection to something living that I'm not showing up on Sunday to preach a sermon that could have been preached in 1920 or in 1850 and will be preached in 2075, but how does it relate to the world right now? And you know, part of that is, is studying the history, part of that is studying the tradition and, and all of the things that you guys are doing and giving me the tools to do, and then funneling that through experience, funneling that through the socioeconomic, uh, all of those things, the context of my community. That's where I see that as a pastor. But also I think it's in, it's helping my community do those things too. When I show up to a Bible study, I'm really encouraging people to, to, to own it, you know, to own this story. What does it say to you? And that there's no right and wrong answer, which I think often in church people feel that there's the right and the wrong answer. And when I was a chaplain working with veterans, and you, and you tried to do a Bible study, it was like people would parrot the same response to whatever question, what is this thing about? And, and they felt that you have to get on the soapbox and that's what it's about. And I think it's about, it's a living thing. So what is it about to you? And if there's 10 people in the room, there should be 10, probably 10 different things that it means um, and, and to honor that. And to me, that's the creative, uh, that's a creative piece that we can all share with each other. But I was just curious to throw it back to Anna and talking about, uh, you were talking about the, the three things that get, like are imperialized by Christianity, race, gender, sexuality. And I'm, I would love, I think it's a whole other maybe event is like, how do we specifically take that apart? Uh, I don't know if you can say something to that in like a quick moment or whatever time we have left. I'm glad to do so. Thanks for um, asking. And I was in the middle of typing for the chat. So I'll just clarify that if I had another second, I was going to recommend the book Octavia's Brood as a as a text to go look at for black speculative science fiction. Okay, so um, Julia, thank you. I would love to go deep into that. And so I'll just try to say briefly that these categories of um, our bodies as raced and our bodies as gendered and our bodies as sexually oriented um, are not the only categories we get from Christian imperialism. We could we could do quite a lot with categories of race here. I'm sorry, class. I've already said race, class as well. Um, and in fact, I don't know that we can do any of them without the others. But my own emphases in my work tend to go to race and gender and particularly sexual orientation. I've been guided a lot by Maria Lagone's um, philosophical work, uh, where she looks at coloniality as um, an enmeshment of these concepts within our body so that it's more than just like looking at the intersections of the way um, our raced identities and our gendered identities come together and rather uh, a realization that the categories co-create each other, that race is set up as a heterosexual or a heterosexist concept, for example. Um, if we start to... Um, 
destabilize these. And one of the ways I think we can destabilize them is with, for instance, Christian origins, we can look at different ways that gender functions then, um, even if we're speculating. And we can look at, as Matthew was pointing us to, we can look at indigenous wisdoms. We can look at really radically different ways to think gender, for example. And then it, it starts to become even more clear, oh, wait, where did the where did the idea that we have a two gender system of men and women, where did, where does that come from? And so then one starts to see the weight of Christian imperialism there. Um, all right. So to your question, if we start to destabilize it, what might we be able to do? I, th I think that, um, this line from the New Testament for freedom, Christ has set us free. I, I think we start to see new modes of freedom when we no longer are bound by the very narrow categories of embodiment that Christian imperialism has gotten so many people so very used to. So that so that even if you're in a category that um, you need to claim with pride as a way to survive, um, your options for how to live uh, are still rather limited by that category. So just as an example, claiming queer status is for many people a really important aspect of pride because it allows you to survive in a heterosexist world. But what if we come to find that heterosexu heterosexuality itself is a Christian imperial product? What if our bodies can do so much more? And I think that's where we start to find these new modes of freedom in Christ. I'm excited about it, and I'm sure that I've been too brief, but I've also taken up too much time, so I'll stop. Thanks for asking me, Julia. That was great, Anna. Thank you very much. And thank you to uh, all the panelists, Julia, Ellie, Matthew, Hal, Celine, and Anna again. Uh, really appreciate your participation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Interrupted, the West Art Institute podcast. If you would like to learn more about the West Art Institute or become a member, visit weststarinstitute.org. Interrupted is produced by Jordan Miller and Matthew Baker. We hope you'll join us again next time.